This is a Courageous Church podcast, equipping and empowering you to live a courageous life. Join us now as we listen to a message from Courageous Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. My purpose always in teaching God's Word in the 80s and 90s and today has been exposition that leads to revelation. Revelation in the knowledge of Him. Bottom line. But we got to couple the exposition and the revelation with application. It's so vital. Which leads to behavioral modification. If we're gathering to share the word with one another so that we can feel good and possibly even grow closer to God, but it isn't changing the way we live our lives, then we might have missed something. Behavior modification, which results in our becoming more like Jesus and then leaving this place so that we can impact others, resulting in changed lives. I'm talking about redemptive behavior. And I struggled, I'll be honest with you, yesterday and today as I contemplated this passage, which is so full of the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is so rich. But I don't want to be a pastor, a teacher, a leader who simply breaks open the Word of God, the bread of life, without the proper emphasis on application that causes us to change and to do. Now, I'm not talking about doing in order to be saved. I'm talking to believers. Let me just remind us of something, again, as you indulge me. The church is not the field. The church is not the field. The world is the field. The reason we're here is so that we could be equipped together. The leadership of the church is given to equip the saints for the work of the ministry to the edification or the strengthening, the building up of the body of Christ. This isn't a field of dreams, church. If you build it, they will come. Have you already realized that that doesn't really work? First of all, it's a fantasy. And second of all, those players in the field of dreams are ghosts. They're not real. The real people in this valley that need God aren't coming because they drive by and see the placard or because they saw something on Facebook. We got to go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in so that God's house may be full. And his house isn't just where we gather. But it does include that gathering, but it's also inhabiting heaven. So let me encourage us as we look into the Gospel of John to keep our focus not just on knowing more about Jesus, but in being more like Jesus. And if we are like Jesus, we will follow his example and we will do what he did because that's what he's called and equipped us to do, as I think you will see again tonight. Have you ever been involved in court proceedings? 
I, I think for many of us, it probably would be relegated to traffic court or maybe jury duty. In fact, uh, I was called for jury, jury duty in 2009, and I was chosen by the attorneys to participate as a jurist in a two-month trial in Orange County, California. And ultimately, I was elected during the deliberations as the jury foreman. And I want you to know that I got a, a, a quick lesson in our legal system. But it doesn't even begin to touch what happened to me when my real education began in 2014. When I was subpoenaed, and I needed to respond. I needed to give an answer. Because I was now a defendant. And that process lasted from 2014 and is still wrapping up. The players I learned in the typical trial is the accuser, the plaintiff, and the accused, the defendant, and the counselors, the prosecuting attorney, and the defense attorney, and the judge, who in many cases will edu educate the the case himself and determine its outcome. But typically it's a jury, a jury of our peers who will hear the case and decide the verdict. Opening statements will be offered and then witnesses will be called and evidence presented and then closing arguments. Then the jury will be instructed and that they will deliberate and they will give a verdict. And then there'll be a sentence and in some cases, there'll be an appeal to a higher authority. John chapter 5 records a fascinating account of Jesus' healing ministry, power evangelism, and the resulting accusations from Jewish leaders, religionists. I believe there is no other place in the New Testament that his revelation of himself his personal testimony is so profoundly communicated. And I bet coming here tonight, you didn't think that. And I believe most of us read through John, and we don't see that. Listen, as Jesus shares in the first person, he shares his perspective of himself. And this is really a life lesson for us. We need to listen to what the Spirit is saying, not just to the churches, but what he's saying to you and me. We need to listen, and we need to do what he tells us to do. Pastor Jason taught it. When Jesus turned the water into wine, Mary said, do whatever he tells you to do. And if you and I aren't getting up every morning and saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? We may miss what he wants us to do. And we may do what we want to do. And wouldn't that be a shame? Jesus had healed an invalid of 38 years on the Sabbath day at the Pool of Bethesda, John chapter 5. And he's immediately accused by the Jews. But he doesn't argue with them about the Sabbath or their abuses of the Sabbath. Instead, he moves to a Christological discussion, a discussion about himself. 
and he gives his greatest discourse on his deity, you'll find anywhere in the New Testament. This is not by John, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We're familiar with that. No, this isn't that, this isn't that, that revelation. Or by Paul in Philippians chapter 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Nope, that was Paul's perspective. It's accurate, theologically correct. Or Colossians chapter 1 that tells us uh, who Jesus is and where he came from. And No, this is Jesus on Jesus. Listen, many people consider the Gospel of John to be the holy place of the New Testament. Like the temple was the holy place of the Old Testament, they see the Gospel of John as the holy place. And if that's true, then chapter 5, coupled with chapter 17, why? In chapter 5, Jesus will give his answer about himself clearer than he ever gives it again. And in chapter 17, he doesn't teach on prayer, he prays. So if this gospel is the holy place, then this chapter and chapter 17 are the holy of holies of the New Testament. Now in context, Jesus, Jesus is accused of three crimes by the Jews. Quickly, number one, that he healed or he worked on the Sabbath. Number two, he called God his father. And number three, he claimed equality with God. Now listen, I have an apologistic bent and I challenge individuals regarding those things, but this is Jesus being challenged because of things he's done and said that cause First century religionists to believe he's taking those titles to himself. The fact is, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. The fact is, he did call God his Father. And the fact is, he was with God in the beginning, and Jesus is God. Now, if your theology has Jesus in any other place than being with God and God himself, then you're Theology needs a radical adjustment because it's not biblical theology. We'll put up some slides as we go through this, but let's start with John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. I've summarized what takes place, and we'll look at it in some more detail in the future. But this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. He gives an answer. When you're accused, when you're deposed, you have to give an answer. If you don't give an answer, the judge will, will offer what's called a summary judgment, which basically means accused, unanswered, guilty. And Jesus here gives an answer. My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You say, well, I don't really believe that he was equal with God, or I don't really believe that he thought he was equal with God. Well, that's what the Jews thought, and that's why they wanted to kill him. Remember Paul's statement in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. 
He's talking about Christ, and he says, Jesus Christ was in the form of God, but he didn't think equality with God was something to grasp or hold on to. See, there's no confusion about this to the New Testament audience. And the punishment that they sought for these three crimes, they just didn't want to shut him down. They didn't just want to throw him out. The punishment was the death penalty. In, listen, in their zeal for the law given, they overlooked the law giver. Did you catch that? The law given by God, the Sabbath. But it was given by God. He's the giver of the law. And their focus was so much on the gift given that they missed the giver. Let's not be guilty of that. Don't major on the minors. How often in the body of Christ can we be guilty individually or as communities of putting our focus on the wrong thing? So much were they consumed in their zeal, in their accusations, and in their plotting of his death, even before he was tried. Not even giving him an opportunity to speak. And we are familiar that ultimately, at the hands of the council and the, and the high priests, Jesus doesn't answer much. Do you ever wonder why there's so little answer? The answer is simple. It was too late. It was the, it was the hour of the prince of darkness. When Jesus is before Caiaphas and the high priest, it's over. He's going to the cross. He's going to do what he came to do. But at this point, it's not time to go to the cross yet. He's in his ministry. He's serving the purposes of God to his own generation. He's reaching men and women and children, and he's given an answer about himself. This is amazing, and we need to be ready to give an answer. So we see here how religion binds, blinds the minds of those who don't believe. Remember, Jesus has already made direct statements. I am the Messiah. I am God. Where did he say those? We, we studied it together. John chapter 4, woman at the well. It was sort of a private confession. It wasn't to the world yet. But the woman says, you know, when the Messiah comes, he will help us to understand all these things. And Jesus said, remember? Remember? Remember the phraseology? Speaking to you, I am. That was his answer, literally. Speaking to you, I am. I am the Messiah. I am God. Wow. But here in John chapter 5, Jesus' claims are being scrutinized. But this trial, this type of trial, is not typical. You see, Jesus is defendant. He's defending himself. He's both defendant and he's also defense counsel. Nobody else is pleading his case. He's pleading it himself. In fact, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, we have an advocate, a counselor, we have an attorney with God. Did you know that? Jesus Christ, the righteous, he's our counselor. But now he has to defend himself. And apparently there's no judge present at this time. Or is there? We'll get back to that. After the charges are made, Jesus, Jesus basically provides his his answer. In other words, he offers his opening statement, and then he will call witnesses, and then he will present his evidence. That is why this is so profound. And here's the record of this exchange recorded in John chapter 5. As you know, charges against Jesus were common. You're familiar with that, right? He's a Sabbath breaker. 
He's a Samaritan. He's possessed by demons. He's insane. He's an illegitimate child. He's a liar, a false teacher. He works by the power of hell. He's a blasphemer. Pretty, pretty stout charges, right? Can you imagine? Do you hear people talking about Pastor Jason that way? I mean, just think of this. What is blasphemy? It's to insult God. And the Jews thought they were defending the honor of God. And if people stand up today in our midst and say, well, I'm God, we're going to say, no, you're not God. But that's what was happening. To insult God, to show contempt for God. That's what the Jews were accusing Jesus of. Look, he is God, and that's his claim, or he is not God. And this is something that everyone in Salt Lake City and the United States of America and the nations of the world need to come to terms with. Either Jesus is God or he is not. And there's no way to sugarcoat this. There's no middle ground. Jesus can't be a good teacher and a deceiver. Can't be. Clearly, for a human being to claim equality with God, that's blasphemous. And so he gives here his own testimony and then he substantiates it. He begins with his defense based upon what he did on the Sabbath, and then he develops into his relationship to and with God. And the Jews in this passage, keep in mind, are lost leaders. It was priests that were gathered around the pool of Bethesda waiting for the angel to trouble the water and to see if there was another healing. Jesus just happened to intervene and as God healed someone and upset the whole apple cart on purpose. First of all, to heal the man who, if you read it carefully, wasn't a believer and may not have become a believer after the fact. He actually turns Jesus in. Sometimes God's grace just falls on righteous and unrighteous alike. Thank God. I was unrighteous when he found me. His answer, because the accused is required to answer, is recorded in verses 19 through 30, and we're going to go through it quickly. I outlined this chapter, and I found that he makes five statements, he makes five claims, and he offers five evidences or five proofs. So let's look at them. Our next slide, verse 19, Jesus works in lockstep with the Father. That's the statement I'm making to you. Jesus is working like the Father works. And keep in mind that Jesus is God and the Father is God and the Bible tells us there's one God and Jesus is imitating or duplicating the work of God in heaven. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Now this is interesting. What Jesus is saying is, God works on the Sabbath. God doesn't need rest. Most of us haven't thought this through. We assume because God rested from creation on the seventh day that God rests every seventh day, but that's not true. God is working every day on behalf of the lost and his creation. Every day God works. He doesn't slumber or sleep. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. 
But Jesus would make statements like this about God, but then he would make the same statement about himself. And you know what? That made the Jews really mad. So mad they wanted to pick up stones to hurl at him. It drove them crazy. But Jesus is exalting himself here above the Sabbath regulations. He says in verse 17, I'm working and my father's working. My father's working and I'm working. Why are you healing? Because God is working and I'm working. We're busy working. Just because God gave you a Sabbath and said don't work doesn't mean he can't work. He's still working. In this sense, Jesus is one with the Father. And by the way, you don't need an excuse to do good. Just do good. The second statement, the Father loves the Son. Jesus says, the Father loves the Son. Jesus says, Father God loves me. That's what he told the Jews. And they want to kill him. And the incarnation, the Word, becoming flesh, dwelling among us, Jesus, receives the divine seal of approval. Verse 20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these, greater works than turning water into wine, greater works than healing an impotent man of 38 years, Greater works than these will he show them so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Just giving us a little precursor into some of the things Jesus is going to be doing in the very near future. I like Acts 10.38 where Peter says, as he reveals the Trinitarian cooperation of God, he says, how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed and afflicted of the devil because God was with him. So Jesus was empowered by God through the Holy Spirit in order to honor God, who empowered Jesus to walk in the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And you know, that's the very same ministry he's called you and me to. Amen. It's true. Amen. It's so powerful. And this empowerment reaches into the realm of death and provides life. The third statement, Father gives the Son of Man authority to judge men. Verse 22, for the Father judges no one, but he's given all judgment to the Son. Did you hear that? The Father didn't create. Jesus is the agent of God in creation. And the Father judges no one. But he has given all judgment to the Son. Who said that? Jesus said that. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. So equality in judgment is what Jesus says he possesses with the Father. Equal in judgment. And that results in them sharing the same honor. Have you been to a court? I mean, the judge could care less about the attorneys and all the players. They all have a subordinate role. The judge commands honor. And God commands honor in the universe. And he shares that honor with his son who he will judge the nations through. So failure, according to Jesus, he says it here, failure to honor the son dishonors the father. Think about this. Think about the world religions. Failure to honor the son. So Buddhists and Hindus and Muslims 
and agnostics and people that say they, they have an acknowledgement of God. They believe in God. If they don't honor the Son, they dishonor the Father and they don't know the Father. Why? Because relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. You say, Jim, are you saying that Christianity is a closed religion that we have, that people have? Yes. That is what God taught. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of the direct statements of Scripture. Number four, the fourth statement, hearing Christ's word and believing in the Father who sent the Son produces salvation. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He who does not come, he who does not come into judgment, he does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. And so this, Christians, is to be born from above. hearing his word and believing him and believing that the Father sent him. And what's great about this is that this salvation is not just a future hope, it's a present reality. Right now, verse 25, listen to Jesus. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and is now. Some versions, and now is the hour is now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of, the God, of God. Who are the dead that hear his voice? People lost in trespasses and sins. We're not talking about the dead in the grave. An hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself and he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So today is the day of salvation. So repent now and be saved. And I assume that most of us, probably all of us, there may be an exception from time to time, but we're believers because believers gather to be equipped so that we can be sent. But as we bring people in from time to time and they respond to the truth and are saved, but really we should be so equipped that when we go out into the world, which is the field, we should do what sheep do and that's bear sheep. We should go out into the world and we should lead people to Christ and bring them back to the church saved. We don't need to bring them here so Pastor Jason can save them. You save them in Jesus' name. And of course, we can't do that work. He does it. But do you understand what I'm getting at? It's like we're here to grow and be strengthened so we can go out and do the ministry, whatever it is he's calling you to do. This is so powerful. Today's the day of salvation. Remember... The life that's in Christ, that's his essence. In him was life, and the life is the light of men. He's pre-existent, he's co-existent, he's the self-existent one, and yet he humbled himself to the limitations of a body so that he could save us. Now, I just want you to note here that Jesus is not admitting to inferiority with the Father in this passage. In the incarnation, when he put on flesh, Jesus subordinated himself to the Father. He, he emptied himself. The word is kenosis. It's self-emptying. He chose to empty himself so that he could become a servant, so that he could do the will of the Father. But Jesus is so completely surrendered to the will of the Father that he can do nothing of himself. But the submission is not based on inequality or inferiority. Jesus basically is saying to us, I didn't come here to serve myself. I didn't come here to advance myself, but rather the will of the Father. 
So now he's accused by men, and he's a defendant and a defense attorney. In fact, he's told us he's the judge. He's the judge. Defendant, counselor, and judge all wrapped up in Christ because verse 27 says he has the authority to judge. Finally, the fifth statement, the future resurrection also requires belief in the Son. We looked at present resurrection to be saved now, but the future resurrection, you've got to hear his voice. Verse 28, don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Dead people will hear his voice, and they will come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is not saying we will be saved by doing good or lost for doing bad. It's very clear in the gospel we are saved by believing, by faith in Christ. But you listen, you listen for his voice. That's the voice that you're going to hear. No one else is going to call you. No one else will call on that day. It's Jesus. The voice that all will hear is the voice of the Son of God. Then Jesus goes on and he gives us five claims. And, and they're recorded from chapter 5, verse 1 to the end of the chapter. Five claims to be equal with God. Five ways he's equal with God. First, he possesses the divine nature and essence. Second, he works as the Father works, the healings and the miracles. He does the same work. Third, he demonstrates his equality with God by the power that he has over death. Fourth, he demonstrates his equality by the authority that he wields. And fifth and finally, his equality with God is demonstrated by the honor that he receives from the Father and from angels who worship him. And in fact, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in a Jewish legal proceeding, a single witness testimony is insufficient to demonstrate guilt or innocence. It's insufficient. It's actually not allowed. You can't just testify on your own behalf. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word was established in Israel. And Jesus knows that. So in verse 30, he says, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now look at verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me and I know that that testimony he bears about me is true. Jesus is talking to Jews that know this. You've got to have witnesses. You need to have, you need to have testimony of others. You can just say you are whoever you say you are, but who do you bring forth to demonstrate? Where's your two or three witnesses? So Jesus presents five. And to some extent, they're maybe not who you thought they would have been. He presents herein reasons for faith. Now, Pastor Jason and I present reasons for faith. Around Easter time, we'll teach on the evidence of the resurrection, and we like Peter's statement in 1 Peter 3.15 that we should defend the gospel, be ready to give an answer. But these are Jesus' defenses. Pretty interesting, huh? What does Jesus say is the evidence, the proof, the witnesses? Number one is John the Baptist. John the Baptist. John is not just a contemporary of Jesus, his cousin, who, well, well, John, John knew me, so John, believe John. It's much deeper than that. Verse 33 says, you sent to John, he has borne witness to the truth. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says, a voice of one calling, prepare, prepare the way of the Lord in the, in the wilderness, make a straight highway for our God in the desert. 
John the Baptist's ministry was prophesied by Old Testament prophets. And then ultimately, John says, God told me, the Father, when I baptize the Messiah, the Holy Spirit will rest on him. That was John's testimony. He says, I didn't know who Jesus was when he came to me. I just was baptizing him along with everybody else. But the heaven opened. And then John says a little bit later, when the disciples question him, he says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John not only says, I saw the, the Spirit descend, but he gives an explicit declaration that you've got to believe in Jesus. He is a witness. Number two is miracles, verse 36. The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The miracles. The miracles are evidence. And they should be evidence of our lives too, that we're walking under the anointing of the Holy Spirit as we lay hands on the sick and they recover. And as we pray for God's intervention in our communities, but it's certainly true of Jesus' ministry, the miracles. Number three is God the Father himself. Interesting. Verse 37, he says, the Father himself has bore witness about me. When did he do that? Jesus says, you've never heard his voice. That's what he told the Jews. But Jesus has heard his voice, and so did many people when Jesus was baptized not only did John see the Spirit descend, but there was a voice from heaven, and God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The testimony. These are the testimony or the witnesses Jesus offers. Number four is Scripture. Scripture. Yes. That's the evidence. Verse 39, he says, You search the Scriptures. Because you think in them you'll find eternal life, but they be they which testify of me. But you won't come to me so that you can be saved. You know what? He's not talking about the New Testament. You know, the New Testament isn't written at this time. None of the apostles, none of the writers of the Gospels have written yet. Jesus hasn't even died yet. Do you know Paul isn't even saved yet? There is no New Testament. Jesus says, search the scriptures, and he's talking about the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi. In fact, when Jesus teaches the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he starts with Moses and all the prophets, and he shows them all the things that the Old Testament says about him, about Jesus. It's amazing. Amazing. That's the scripture. And then number five is Moses. Moses is a witness, verse 45. Don't think that I'm going to accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you've set your hope. Oh, Moses, Moses. And Father Abraham. Uh-uh. Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would believe in me. Why? Because Moses wrote about me. What a stunning indictment. Yet for all this, Jesus says, all that you've said about me and all that you'll want to do to me and all that you will do to me, I will not accuse you. That's what he says to the Jews. Moses will accuse you. 
he wrote about me. Verse 47, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Philip, disciple of John the Baptist, meets Jesus, and he goes and finds his brother, Nathaniel. And in John chapter 1, Philip says to Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. See, it was so common for them. And most of us, we're thinking, what did Moses say about Jesus? I found nine different specific predictions made by Moses regarding Jesus Christ, and I don't have time to share them with you tonight. I found at least nine, and one day one of us will teach on that, I'm sure, because it's rich. Moses. Notice who he didn't offer as evidence. Notice who he didn't call as witnesses. He didn't call the political establishment. No reference to Rome. No reference to the emperor. He didn't call the religious establishment. No reference to the Sanhedrin. No reference to the high priest. Notice who he didn't call. He did not call his family as witnesses who grew up with him, who were close and understood him. He didn't call James, his half-brother, who becomes the ruling elder of the Jerusalem church and presides over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. And you know who else he didn't call as a witness? Not even his mother. See, the witnesses that Jesus offers are the witnesses that are in Scripture. And we need to stay focused on Scripture and stop rewriting it to suit our own religions and dogmas. So in conclusion, a right view, a correct view of Christ is the heart of the gospel. So who is Jesus? His identity is still debated today. You say, we're believers, Jim. We know that. Yeah, but just listen and, and, and receive and then go and share these truths. Because the attacks on the deity of Jesus Christ began with the Jewish leaders and they have never subsided and they never will. They say he was a deceiver. He was deluded. He was just an angel. Jesus seemed to be human, but he really wasn't a man. Jesus was a man. He was a good teacher, but he really wasn't God. Jesus was becoming God. These are popular teachings, not today, through the centuries, and also today. Or how about Jesus was becoming a God? Unbiblical. It's time for us to stop it. Stand on the word. Remember John's purpose, John 20, 31, that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. So the accusing Jews here are the jury, and people throughout time are the jury. But the jury's decision has no effect on Jesus Christ. But it does have an internal impact on those who render a verdict. And we too are the jury today. But Jesus' fate has already been determined for time and eternity. 
You see, God has highly exalted him. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. As a result of Jesus' humiliation and obedience in paying the sin debt of humankind, God brought him from the lowest place, the grave, to the highest of high. And everyone will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. So who is really on trial? Is God on trial? No. Is Jesus on trial? Hardly. I'm afraid it's you and me. And our decision will determine our eternal destiny. As believers, what we do with the decision we've made as Christians. What then will I do with Jesus, who I believe is Christ? In fact, the decision rendered will provide either a sentence of conviction or of salvation to every person who contemplates his claims and decides the case. Jesus even said one further thing. He said, while I come in my Father's name, representing my Father's purposes, you reject me. This is John 5, 43. You reject me when I come in my Father's name. But he says, when someone comes in their own name, you'll receive him. In other words, as human beings, we're so glad when somebody just comes with authority and power and says, this is it. Here's the answer. But Jesus says, I come from the Father saying what the Father says, doing what the Father does, and you reject me. But he says, when someone comes in his own name, you know who he's really speaking about? Who's coming in his own name that the world is going to receive while rejecting Christ? It's the Antichrist, and he's coming. He's coming. And so heaven waits and watches. Angels are ready to rejoice anytime a sinner repents. And God has winked at our ignorance up till now, but now he commends everyone everywhere to repent. And by the way, don't get this wrong because the defendant, as I said, is also the judge. He's the king of the universe. And there isn't going to be any appeals because there's no higher court or authority than God. Remember, Christian, you didn't choose Christ. He chose you. And he appointed you that you should go and that you should bear fruit, fruit that will last and that anything you ask the Father in his name, he will do it. John 15, 16. The council, the council had Peter and John apprehended, and they took note that they were unlearned and untrained, but they noted they had been with Jesus. How about you? You say, well, I need to go to Bible school. I need to, I need to, I need to, I need to go through the next steps class with Pastor. I, I need to, what you need to do is listen and ask, what would you have me do, Lord? And be obedient. And maybe God will use you and me to turn a city or a nation right side up for his glory. Paul says, you know the time. The hour has come for you and I to awake from sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night's far gone. The day is at hand. So let's cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me? And let's just... Wait for a moment in the presence of God. Pastor Jason's going to come back, but we'll give you the opportunity today. Not just to receive Christ, that's first and foremost, but also to rededicate yourself to be willing to hear and to go in his name.
Lord, we love your word. We live by your word. But let us be doers of your word. And if anyone hears my voice tonight and says, God, I had a different view of you. I haven't surrendered to you. I haven't received your son. But today is the day of salvation as I've heard, as the word has been proclaimed, and I want to receive you now. Simply open your heart. Repent. Change of mind about who God is and about who you are. And remove yourself from the throne of your life in your heart. In your heart of hearts, step off that throne and kneel down and ask the Lord Jesus to take up residence on that throne. Be the Lord of my life, Jesus. Come into my heart and rule and reign through me. You could pray a simple prayer like this. Father in heaven, I know you sent Jesus. And I believe that he died on the cross and he rose from the dead and he's knocking at the door of my heart right now. Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. I receive you as Lord and Savior. Change me from the inside out and fill me with the Holy Spirit because we remember that John the the Baptist said, the one who the Spirit descends upon is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit and power. I want to receive that baptism of power. I want to receive that anointing. If you prayed that prayer, I encourage you to check it on the, the communication card or let Pastor Jason know or some of the believers around you. But don't delay. Surrender your life to Christ. And if, as a Christian, you're not in a regular habit of getting up and saying, Lord, what are we going to do today? Are you just getting up and saying, what am I going to do today? Are you checking your planner? Or are you asking the great planner of heaven to work in and through you like I want him to work in and through me in these last days before he comes? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening today. If you were blessed and you want to be a part of what God is doing through Courageous Church, including ways that you can give, visit us online at CourageousChurch.com.